I'm always very excited to have this opportunity to speak for the Prosperos. Uh, I've been involved in the Prosperos since the early 70s, and it's been a very powerful association for me. In the Prosperos, we have a motto, and our motto is to make spiritual truth an effective force for the common man. Now, our conviction is that there is a guiding intelligence in the universe, and that it is possible for anyone to access that intelligence. But first we need to trust that there is an intelligence, and then we also need to trust that we can make a connection with that intelligence. Now, it may sound as if I'm saying that that guiding intelligence is separate from ourselves. But I'm not saying that, actually. What I'm saying is it is, it is part of ourselves, but it's a different part than the ego. When we are trying to solve problems in our lives, we're usually coming at it from a place of ego, where we are willfully trying to utilize what we know, uh, what's in our awareness, what's in our consciousness, to solve a problem. But when that doesn't work, we need to know that within us, there is that guiding intelligence, that we are one with that guiding intelligence. But for that guiding intelligence to be connected with, we have to get into a receptive mode. We can't be running around trying to do everything from the place of ego. One of the things that happened for me when I was very young is I, I had a strong sense of connection with spirit, uh, maybe because I was an altar boy in the Catholic Church, maybe because my mother was very religious, or maybe just even feeling a sense of a presence when I would walk through the woods or when I would uh, sit by a lake. Uh, I felt like there was something there. My sense of connection with a higher power has proven invaluable in helping me to get through difficult times when I was, able to, when I was unable to handle the challenge personally. I have also observed that when we do not have a sense of connection with something higher than ourselves or larger than ourselves, it is easy to fall into despair because all you have is yourself to try to deal with the problem. And if you're feeling like you can't deal with it, then life becomes hopeless and we fall into despair. And unfortunately, despair often leads to suicide. When we do not sense a higher power or believe a higher power. We do not have anything we can call upon to get us through troubled waters. We all need to have a sense of something other than our egos to call upon when we are unable to overcome an obstacle that we are facing. So uh, it was a struggle for me though because what I also uh, was exposed to as I was growing up was um, religion that told me that there was a devil and that this devil um, was out to get me. It was out to screw me up. It was out to keep me from accessing um, spirit. It was out to lead me astray, if you will. Uh, and I struggled. I struggled because, of course, I heard inner voices in my head uh, you know, we all have little dialogues that happen. 
And as I was listening to those inner voices, sometimes uh, those voices did, add, did suggest uh, that I should do things that um, essentially went against church doctrine or even fundamentally just went against my sense of right and wrong or against uh, society's sense of right and wrong. And I just um, started to wonder and ask this question, how can I trust that there's a guiding intelligence in the universe, that there's a spiritual energy in the universe? Because how do I know what voice is speaking in my ear? How do I know which uh, voice is speaking at any given time? You know, we've all seen those little cartoons of the person sitting uh, with an angel on one shoulder and a devil on another. And was very, very conflicted. At a certain point, I, I just could not reconcile this idea of a loving, creative, <clears throat> spiritual energy existing in the universe, supporting me, but at the same time also allowing for this devil, if you will, that could whisper in my ear and lead me astray. I just could not understand how a loving creator could allow that. And so I walked away from religion. And I tried to figure out for myself what was the best path in my life. And my life did get better. I started to enjoy myself more and I started to feel less conflicted. But there still was a lot of pieces that I couldn't put together. And that led me to seek out a new understanding, if you will, a new way of looking at the universe. And that's what essentially, ultimately, that's, that's what ultimately led me to the Prosperos. What I really liked about the Prosperos was this sense of that there was room for diversity. There was room for different approaches to life. Everyone to be an individual. Our thing used to say, within each person, there is a goodness that will come forth. But for that to come forth, there has to be a sense of trust. Trust not in um, some doctrine that we read, but trust in the order of the universe. Trust in the uh, intelligence of the universe and trust that we actually have a relationship with that intelligence, that we can know that, we can experience that. And that made a lot more sense to me. However, I still had this thing in the back of my mind that says, what do you do about the devil? If you subscribe, which we do in the Prosperos, if you subscribe to a philosophy that says that everything is part of the whole, then everything has to be integrated into that whole. You have to have a sense of understanding about everything. You can't learn mathematics and leave out multiplication or division or subtraction. You have to know and work with all of those different mathematical principles. So my goal was to try to figure out how to look at this idea of the devil from a holistic perspective. Central to Prospero's thinking is that there has to be something substantial for anything to have any kind of existence at all. And if it's in our consciousness, then there's something to it. But we also teach 
that very often we have a distorted perspective on things. So what is this distortion? What is this about, this devil energy? So I figured I, the best thing I could do is do some research. I, rather than run away from the devil, I decided that I would go deeply into the study of what the devil is. And so I acquired a book called The History of the Devil by Gerald Masadre. And one of the key ideas that you um, see, most of us think that devil, the devil, if you will, and evil are always connected. But that certainly is not the case. Evil can and does exist in the world independently of whether or not a person believes in the devil. People are, people are quite capable of engaging in evil acts whether or not they believe in evil spirits. We also have to take note of the fact that what actually is considered to be evil will vary from culture to culture. So if that's not consistent, what is consistent? It is valuable for us to look at what does the devil do? What does our stories tell us about what the devil does? Now, there's some very interesting stories that are part of our culture. The first one is the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, we have uh, Adam and Eve supposedly are tempted by a serpent, and the serpent uh, persuades them that they should eat this fruit, and that because they eat the fruit, they are cast out from paradise. So you could see that the way that's constructed it's the devil's fault because the devil tempted Eve and Adam to do this. So he is to blame. Well, actually, there's another word for his role in this. And the role is scapegoat. It's not by accident that when we look at the devil that he actually looks somewhat like a goat. Because if there is anything that's consistent about the way man relates to the devil, it's that man often will blame the devil for his misbehaviors. The devil made me do it. There was that famous little skit that Flip Wilson used to do where he used to say, the devil made me do it. And we all laughed at that. But there was a part of us that sort of related to that whole idea. So let's come back now to our consideration of the Garden of Eden myth. I am... Uh, been doing a lot of research around this story uh, in preparation for my next book, which is called uh, Return to Paradise, in which I will discuss uh, how that particular myth influences the way we look at life and how we may need to reconsider that myth in terms of what it says to us and what it teaches us uh, about life. What's really going on in this story? Well, we're, we're being told about the beginning of man. One of the great mistakes, I think, that comes out of that story is this idea that we are disconnected from spirit, that we are exiled from spirit because of what Adam and Eve do when they eat the fruit. Now, our assumption has always been that that was arrogance, that we would eat the fruit because we wanted to be godlike and that it was not our place it was not man's place to become godlike 
But what if something else is really going on in this story? What if there's another way to look at it? Well, there is. The Gnostics looked at this story and said that the real hero of the story is the serpent. Because the other character, the other divine character in the story, was keeping Adam and Eve in this garden in which they didn't do anything. They weren't responsible. They weren't creative. They weren't really participating in life. They were just having their needs provided for. Well, that all sounds to me like a fantasy. It sounds to me like man looks back and thinks, gee, at one time everything was perfect and that we must have done something wrong to get exiled. But the assumption there is that everything was perfect before they get kicked out. A different way of looking at that story would be that man isn't really participating in the universe. He isn't doing anything. He isn't contributing anything. He certainly is not being creative. So the serpent comes along and says, well, why don't you eat of this fruit? It will make you divine. It will make you aware of the knowledge of good and evil. The key thing in that is to notice that the serpent is saying you will become aware. Now, if we think about our history, the most powerful thing that man can do is become aware. Because when he studies his world, when he studies the laws and principles that govern his world, and he learns what those laws and principles are, then he is able to live in harmony with the world. Not only that, he is also able to express himself creatively through learning the laws and principles that relate to creativity. So becoming aware is not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. What is it that he says you become aware of? He says you become aware of the knowledge of good and evil. Is that a bad thing? Knowing what evil is certainly is a valuable thing because when we are unconscious about evil behavior and engage in evil behavior, we not only do damage to others or to the environment, we usually do damage to ourselves as well because there's this law called karma. The energy that you put out comes back. So being aware of what evil behavior is, is a really valuable thing, as well as becoming aware of what goodness is. Because when you do goodness, you're in harmony with the totality of the universe, because the universe is one reality that is all harmonious within the one. So becoming aware of goodness is becoming aware of what works. In fact, there's a wonderful book um, called Ego and Archetype that uh, written by a man named Edinger. And in this book, he basically says that the whole Garden of Eden myth is about the birth of human consciousness. Now, consciousness happens by our participation in life. That prior to participating, we're operating exclusively out of the unconscious. And the unconscious gets us in trouble more often than not because we really don't know what works and what doesn't work in life. So when Satan comes along, or the devil, or the serpent, or whatever you want to call it, and he tempts Adam and Eve to become aware, what he's really doing is he's activating mankind's ability to participate in the universe through his capacities to learn, use capacities to study how the world works. But that can only happen if we participate, if we find our courage and participate.
We don't learn by being timid or by being withdrawn from life. We learn by having the courage to grapple with the great challenges of life. Now, when we think about this, there's a part of us that might say, well, when I listen to the voice of temptation, the voice of the devil that's whispering in my ear to do this or do that, that very often when we listen to that voice, we do something that ends up getting us in, in trouble. Sometimes it tempts us to lie. Sometimes it tempts us to steal. But the truth of the matter is that until we actually make a mistake, we don't know what works and what doesn't work. In a way, we could say that the serpent is tempting us to make a mistake. Only by making a mistake do we learn what works and what doesn't work. We don't learn by being timid. We don't learn by not participating in life. We don't learn by being withdrawn. The devil or Satan is like an aggravation that leads to participation. And we may not like it, but it does work. Now, this is actually illustrated in my tarot card from my tarot deck. When you look at this card, what you see is that there's two people, a man and a woman, which actually represents the assertive part of ourselves and the receptive part of ourselves. In the card, what it represents is how we turn away from things that haunt us. We turn away from things that torment us. We try to pretend that there's no problem. But the problem doesn't go away. The torch that we see actually lights the butt on fire, if you will. And in other words, it's like the burr underneath the saddle that aggravates us until we turn and face the problem. Now, another point I'd like to make is, how is it that an all-powerful creator makes this garden and doesn't know that there's a serpent, not know that that's there? Well, let's assume he does know. And we could, we could assume that he wants the serpent to tempt us in order to find out whether or not we're loyal, whether or not we're obedient. That's actually sort of the party line on this issue. But why would the serpent cooperate with that if he's really the arch nemesis of the creator? What really is going on in the situation is, is the big boss does want the serpent to tempt us, not to challenge us to be disobedient, but to challenge us to find our courage to participate in life, to find our capacity to have initiative, to actually think for ourselves rather than accept something simply because somebody tells us. Our second story is also from the Bible. It's the story of Job, which is a very important story for us in the Prosperous. We talk a lot about this story in our, in our releasing the Hidden Splendor class. And in this story, in the beginning, uh, we read a passage that reads something like, the creator and the devil, or Satan, or Lucifer, or whatever you want to call him, were hanging out together. Well, that in itself is a pretty interesting idea. Why would these mortal enemies that are the antithesis of each other be hanging out together? That is a very interesting question. 
and one worthy of our consideration. What's really going on in that situation? Well, what happens in that situation is that uh, the creator looks down at Job and says, look at Job, you know, he's really cool. He's very obedient. He's very penitent. He's very honoring of me. And, and, the, and Satan replies, or the devil replies, hey, give me a chance to have a go at him. We'll see just exactly how honorable he really is. And the creator says, go ahead. And from there, what happens is the devil comes down and he basically torments um, Job, makes his life miserable, and um, that eventually leads to um, Job having a moment where he stands up and essentially speaks to spirit, speaks to the creator, and says, what's this all about? Why did all of this happen? Why have you done this to me? But none of that would have happened if Satan or the devil hadn't tormented Job. With Job, we know that uh, he had a sense of respect for the Creator, but did Job really have a dynamic relationship? Did he really understand what his responsibilities were? Did what Job went through eventually lead him to the place in which he found courage? to ask the difficult questions. Job says to spirit, what's up with this? Why, why did this happen? Why did you allow all of this torment to take place in my life? And the answer to that is very interesting because um, what happens is spirit actually talks to Job. The answer that he got back was, where were you when I put the stars in motions in the heavens? So what Spirit was saying to Job was that the universe operates according to law and principle. So in a way, what Spirit is saying is to Job, it was your fear that drew to you the experiences that you had. But none of that could have taken place unless Job had been challenged. So the third story we're going to talk about briefly, uh, because I only have an hour to talk today and I can't get too long. The third story that I'm going to talk about is the story about Jesus uh, and his encounter with Satan or the devil in the desert. After a long time of uh, deprivation, uh, Jesus being in the desert and depriving himself of nourishment, Satan appears to him and says, essentially, why don't you use your power to alleviate your suffering? Or why don't you use your power for personal gain? And Jesus, of course, responds to that with man does not live by bread alone. So in three different ways, Satan tempts Jesus. And in each case, Jesus resists the temptation to use his power for egotistical personal desires or personal to fulfill personal needs. Now, I want to give you another example that I think will be helpful in um, 
understanding, coming to a new understanding about uh, what we call the devil and understanding its place within the holistic reality of the universe. And that, that, that would be the story of the Tempest, uh, which, of course, is where the name Prosperos comes from. In the play The Tempest, there was a character by the name of Prospero, and he was a very powerful man who ruled his kingdom, um, but he didn't really want to participate in life. He, he just liked to sit around and read his books. And because he was reading his books, he, he missed the fact that his brothers started to conspire against him. And eventually his brother caused Prospero to be cast down from his throne of rulership and to be exiled onto an island. Now on this island, uh, Prospero uh, initially was tormented by this character named Caliban. And Caliban made Prospero's life quite miserable. Well, this is sort of what his fate was until one day uh, Prospero met another spirit, uh, which was called Ariel. And what Ariel taught Prospero was that if you can tame Caliban, if you can make Caliban your servant, and I, Ariel, says to Prospero, I'll help you do this. Uh, if you can make uh, Caliban your servant, then you can regain what you lost. Now, again, I'm giving you a very abbreviated version of the story, but let's go through these pieces and, and think about what the parallels might be. Um, initially, Prospero, is, he's, he rules his kingdom, um, but he isn't really participating. He isn't really engaged in things. He's just sort of hanging out in his books, uh, not really paying attention, sort of like Job. Uh, Job wasn't really paying attention until his brother conspires to uh, get him overthrown. And when that happens, he gets exiled to an island. Well, being exiled to an island is like being cast out from the totality of life into a very, very small area, like an island. Well, we all have these kinds of experiences where something traumatic happens in our life, something difficult happens in our life. And instead of having freedom to really participate in life, uh, we, we sort of get driven into a very small arena of limited behavior. And in that place of limited behavior, what happens? Oh, we don't get to just hang out and do nothing we actually get tormented by Caliban. So Caliban is sort of like Satan or the devil, if you will. It's that part of the universe that will not allow us to run away from our troubles. It's the part of our universe that keeps drawing our attention back to the things that we have unresolved in our consciousness. Now that's really an interesting thought. To recognize that you can turn your back away from things that you are uncomfortable with, but somehow, some way, those things always seem to be persistent in, in drawing our attention. 
They may, it may be persistent by uh, somebody pushing our buttons. It may be persistent as uh, we keep seeing stories about uh, similar situations to what we have. Uh, we keep being reminded of something that's unresolved within our consciousness, within our world, within our experience. That's part of what that energy does. That's part of what uh, the Caliban does, is it keeps drawing Prospero's attention to his difficulties. That's what the irritation is. That's what the torment is. And that's the torment that Satan has, Satan or the devil has for us. It keeps irritating us, not to irritate us, for to, to punish us, but to get us to start to pay attention to what we're neglecting. We may not want to do that. We may feel like it's hard work. But again, if we want our lives to be better, we have to root out misunderstanding and overcome our limited thinking. And that's only going to occur if we're aware of what the problem is. And that's what Caliban does. He irritates Prospero. Or that's what the devil does. He irritates Job. Or that's what the devil does with Jesus. He tempts him. It's the same kind of thing, seen from a different perspective. So what happens with Prospero? He's tormented by Caliban until one day uh, he meets Ariel, which represents higher spirit, the guiding intelligence, the guiding spirit. It's the angels, if you will, or uh, the great uh, loving energy of the universe that when we trust that spirit is there to support us, the spirit will support us through that process of overcoming our limited thinking, of correcting the errors in our consciousness. And when we do that, by confronting the problem that Caliban represents or the devil represents, we actually learn how to master something we, that previously was a source of torment. So one way to say this would be that both Ariel and Caliban are necessary. Then in a way, it's like they're, they're doing the good cop, bad cop routine. Uh, Caliban's a bad cop and Ariel's a good cop, but together they get us to move. They get, they get us to grapple with our life challenges. And there is no more effective way that I'm aware of for grappling with our life challenges than the tools that the Prosperos offers. The tools of RHS, what we call releasing the hidden splendor, we call it RHS for short, or the tool of translation. When we look at each of these stories, what, what's the common element? Well, I think the common element is that there's a test going on, that there's a challenge. Uh, and so what we might understand then is that each of these stories represents a process, a process of being tested. Well, why is testing necessary? Well, the truth of the matter is, is that we don't really know what our character is, what our capabilities are, unless we're tested. You know, like they say, if you want to be good at a, a sport, for instance, you need to play with someone who's at a higher level than you are. So in a way, we could start to see 
that what's really going on in each of these situations is that each of these characters are being challenged in such a way that they reach a higher level of awareness. Now, when I talk about stories, whether it's from the Bible or whether it's from Greek mythology, I often run into um, two attitudes that get in the way of really working with these stories. And the first attitude is that they are, well, people call them myth, as if that means that they hold no wisdom, they hold no understanding, that it's some sort of fairy tale from the past that no, is no longer relevant. And therefore, we don't really need to look at these stories. The second attitude that I run into is that people often regard uh, stories as sacred. And because they think of them as sacred, they feel like it's uh, disrespectful to, to look at them from a different perspective. The reason stories endure is because they hold wisdom. But as we evolve, our understanding of the stories also evolves. So it's not disrespectful to look at these stories from a deeper level of understanding. But it does require letting go of the paradigm of duality and embracing a new paradigm of oneness. Now, a paradigm is not a small thing. It's a huge thing. A paradigm is something that's so pervasive that it literally affects everything. Now, the paradigm we've been operating under for a long time is a paradigm of duality. Now, in the paradigm of duality, you have to decide what's good and what's not good. And whatever you think of as not good, you reject. But the net effect of that is that things are left out. We believe that it's essential to understand in a holistic view of the universe, everything fits together in the oneness of all. And everything fits together harmoniously. That which we experience as disharmonious in our lives is somehow a distortion. And what we think of often as evil and as something that we don't want to embrace simply requires some kind of transformation within our consciousness. There was a time when we thought dancing was evil. That required a transformation in our consciousness. Now, transformation requires our attention. Caliban is the irritant calling out for us to engage in transformation. Transformation does not happen simply by thinking positively and saying everything is perfect. Transformation will only happen by wrestling with our devils. But don't worry, you are not alone in this. Within you is that higher awareness, a higher intelligence that is part of who you are, or that is what Ariel represents in the story. Ariel is you, just as Caliban is you. Both Ariel and Caliban are calling out to you to become conscious through the process of wrestling with both your angels and your devils. That is an evolutionary process. We believe in the prosperous. The most significant thing that goes on is the evolution of consciousness. That that is really the story of the entire history of the universe. And that that is our responsibility as humans, is to become conscious participants. Well, you can't be a conscious participant unless you actually interact with the world, unless you participate in the world. And participating in the world means 
you, you ask questions, like Job asked a question, or you seek out knowledge, like Eve sought out knowledge. But it has to be for the right purpose. It has to be for something greater than the ego's desires, as is demonstrated by Jesus. So in each of these examples, what you start to see is that what we think of, or what we've called the devil, and perhaps used as a source of blame in the past, is actually a catalyst for change. It is an element uh, of the spiritual energy of the universe that we may not like because it irritates us, because it's like a burr underneath our saddle that says you have to participate in life. You have to participate in evolution. But they're not working in the sense of like, sort of like Satan tempting Jesus, where it, it works to serve the ego. It works to reveal greater understanding, and when we have greater understanding, our lives work better. But this does not mean that we have to sacrifice our ego's desires. Rather, we just need to be open to the universe surprising our ego with some unexpected result. When we do our work, if our hearts and minds are open, we will find that spirit will lead us back to paradise.